Welcome to the Dungeon Pastors. How are you doing today, folks? I hope you're enjoying yourselves. We've got an interesting episode for you. Uh, my name is Derek White. Uh, I am known as the Geek Preacher. This is Stephen Taylor. And, and I have GamesForAll.net. Yes, yes. Stephen runs GamesForAll.net, if I didn't over-talk him there for a second. <laughs> uh, but we're going to do some introductions again today because we're, we may have some more uh, listeners jumping in for this special podcast slash video blog or whatever we are calling this thing now. But uh, because as you'll notice, we've got an extra face with us today. This is John Price, and we're going to be introducing him in just a moment. But for those of you who may be new to the podcast or not familiar with us, my name is Derek White. Uh, I am a United Methodist minister. I'm also known as the Geek Preacher. I am the chaplain for the gaming convention, Gary Con. Uh, I uh, occasionally write articles for some gaming magazines and uh, do some, lead some ministry events and things like that at various gaming conventions around the country. Uh, that's me in a nutshell. You can find out more about me at geekpreacher.org or on the Geek Preacher page on Facebook. And Stephen Taylor, I'll let you tell a little bit more about yourself, and then we'll introduce John. Yeah, um, I'm a learning technologist for a local further education, higher education college, um, and I do lots and lots of geeky stuff. I go around helping churches run board game nights and tabletop nights and stuff like that, and just generally support people as best as I can with it. So, yeah. You can find out about me, as I said before, gamesworld.net. So have a look at that. See what it's like. All right. And our guest today is a folklorist. He is the editor for New Directions in Folklore, and his name is John Price. John and I have known each other online for a number, about two years now, I believe. And uh, this is the first time we've ever gotten to talk face-to-face. And I'm really intrigued by the work he's doing with New Directions in Folklore, as well as having read some of his dissertation. So I'm going to let uh, John talk, uh, introduce himself and talk a little bit more about New Directions in Folklore. Great. Hi, uh, my name is John Price. I uh, am a, uh, I have a PhD in American Studies. I am the editor of New Directions in Folklore, which is a uh, peer-reviewed referee journal um, that is uh, under the control of uh, the American Folklore Society. We're a section group uh, and we have our own journal. Basically, that's it. Um, but at New Directions, one of the things we do is we're always looking for, wait for it, new ways to uh, study folklore and to look at the ways in which tradition and performance are, are manifesting themselves in, in culture. Wow, that, that sounds totally geeky. That, yeah. that that sounds like our our uh, our thing we like. Uh, we love folklore around. We do, yeah. I, I'm I'm in the UK, which is like one of the homes of folklore in a way. We have so much of it. But what actually is folklore? Since you're the expert, <laughs> <laughs> I know Derek's put you on the spot with this one only about half an hour ago. <laughs> so, what is the definition of folklore? Sure. Uh, so. Folklore, when, when kind of normal people hear the word folklore, they think of like fairy tales or they think of um, like, I don't know, like bluegrass banjo music or, you know, something like that, you know, um, uh, you know, like uh, uh, Bob Dylan, you know, folk singers, you know, whatever. Um, 
in academic terms, folklore is much bigger than that. It's, it's, it's informally uh, uh, traditions, it's informal culture, it's um, the ways in which people live their lives by their own decisions. Um, and so we're not talking about formal culture. We're not talking about um, uh, the things that you have to do, the things that you're mandated to do. We're talking about the things that you, in fact, decide to do on your own. So even within formal structures, there are ways in which folklore lives. Um, so it's not just fairy tales. It's also legends. It's also uh, myths. It's also uh, a lot of those familiar ideas. Those are informal. But it's also going to be things like jokes. Um, it's also going to be things like uh, cosplaying, you know, the performance, how you perform everyday life. Uh, there's going to be a lot of folklore involved there. Um, uh, one of the ways to think about it is kind of the lore of the folk, right? And you can define the folk however you want, right? So it can be the lore of Britain, right? That could be the folk. Or it could be the lore of the working class. Or it could be the lore of the football team. Or it could be the lore of children. You see what I'm saying? So it's the ways in which, you know, you, you define um, the group that you're looking at and then you define the things that they are doing, right? So as an academic folklorist, you're looking for the ways in which uh, folklore gives you an insight into what a community believes, into what people um, are choosing to do by themselves on their own accord, right? Um, there's a couple different ways you can define it kind of more like formally. Um, uh, one of the more famous ones is uh, variation within tradition and kind of this tension between dynamic and conservative traditions, right? So do you guys know the telephone game? You know, like you say, like you, you, uh, you say something to one person and then they have to say it to the next, to the next, to the next, next. And by you get to the end, you have a completely different saying, right? Um, that's folklore. That's the way folklore works, essentially, right? Where you're all doing the same thing, but you're all doing it slightly differently, which proves the power of the thing you're doing if that makes any sense. Right? I like that a um, lot. <laughs> I like yeah, so it's a you're lot of all doing stuff. the same thing, but yeah. slightly differently. Yeah. And that proves the power of the thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Wow. That's, yeah. that's going into a sermon sometime. I, I like that. <laughs> that. I like that a lot. It's a little footnote, you know, price comma J, you're fine. You know? Hey, 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 <laughs> you, you'll get a big footnote on that one. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so that's that's folklore, yeah. It's also called folk life. A lot of places are more comfortable with the term folk life. Um, you do performance culture, uh, you know, stuff like that. And that's all details you don't have to worry about. <laughs> That that is great. I mean, you you made me think of so many different types when you you started talking about lore of groups. I think of like just in my own family, family lore. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I remember a story, and I, I've shared this with friends before. A story my great grandmother would tell us is uh, we would uh, you know back then it, this was the seventies. Everybody smoked. Okay, everybody smoked. 
And uh, so my mom smoked and everything. And, and she, my great grandmother told us to go out in her yard and pick up all the cigarette butts. And I said, why do we got to pick up all the cigarette butts? And she said, well, if you pick up the cigarette butts, it will end the war. And I said, what do you mean picking up cigarette butts ends <laughs> war? And she said, and, and I asked my mom about it later. And my mom said, well, when her first husband was in World War II or maybe World War I, I can't remember. But when her first husband was serving in the war, he would send home letters and they, he would tell her how he had to pick up the cigarette butts at his campsite. Now, because those letters were redacted by the war office. <laughs> okay. All she could understand was he's picking up the cigarette butts because it ends war. Where we know, you know, we're gamers. We he picked up cigarette butts because uh, because he didn't want they didn't want the enemy to know where they'd been at. You know, right. they didn't want the enemy to track them. And so, for but in my grandmother's mind, the lore she perceived and tried to pass on to us was: if you pick up cigarette butts, it ends war. So, would that be an example of like family lore you're talking about? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, especially the kind of narrative forms. Um, uh, one of the, one of the things folklore does is on, on a personal level, it defines you, you are helping to define who you are, right? So if part of your family narrative is, um, cigarette butts bring victory, you know, then that's, that's it. That's part of your family identity dynamic, right? Yeah. Um, we had a, you know, there's a, there's a story in the Price family where, you know, um, my great grandfather was in World War One, and he jumped into a foxhole and uh, he asked the guy for a cigarette, uh, for a light, you know, and it was at that moment he realized everyone around him spoke German. And so he spent the rest of the war in a POW camp, right? So it's like that kind of story. It's like, it doesn't matter if it's factual, right? And I don't want to kind of, I don't want to get in trouble here, but no, the facts, if they, if the story is believed, if you believe the story, then that is the truth. Yeah. Right. And um, I don't want to get into like philosophical, like, no, oh, no, no, that's fine. We, we do stuff facts, like that. You know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. you guys are more qualified to talk about that stuff, I suppose. But, yeah. but um, if you, you know, uh, the power of folklore is, is, is found in, the ways in which you tie your identity or the tie your belief or truth or something like that to the actual thing. Right. If you write legends, right. Everyone knows what a legend is, right. Um, urban legends, you know, uh, van, you know, you look in your rear view mirror and the hitchhiker is no longer there. Right. You know, that's very famous urban legends been going on since people rode horses. Right. Um, if you believe that to be true, then it's true for you right the point of telling a legend is to get people to question whether or not this unbelievable thing is believable right that's kind of how an academic folklore to kind of look at it or sort of deconstruct it a little bit right then you get into the question of why why do they believe that why did they tell this story why does the audience not believe them or believe them or what have you you know and then when you take it a step further 
how does it affect you and change your interaction with other people? Then you're getting into my realm. <laughs> right. Absolutely. You know, because I, and I know what you're talking about, because uh, one of the biggest problems I have as a preacher, a lot of times is telling people truth and fact is not always the same thing. Sure. Truth is transformative. Truth changes you in some way or a manner. Facts are just facts. And while truth and facts may overlap, they don't have to overlap uh, because whatever the truth is, and, th and that's why people have trouble with somebody saying, well, my personal truth is this, you right. know, and, and personal right. truth is a great thing, but personal truth, uh, you can't, you can't replace facts with personal truth. Right. Right. And, and this is a situation, this is a situation where um, in recent uh, current events, right? We now have a situation like, for example, in the media where people are deciding whether or not to believe facts, right? right? And now we have this so-called quote unquote fake news. It's right. Well, um, the American Folklore Society, the Journal of American Folklore put out a special issue that was effectively saying, hey, we folklorists know exactly what's going on here listen to us. <laughs> like we know why people choose to believe or don't choose to believe certain things and how that develops their worldview sort of thing. Um, so it, it's not just kind of esoteric kind of what is truth, you know, but it has very real world implications as well. Cool. That that's awesome. And, and get us a link to that article yeah. and we will post yeah. that in the show notes and yeah. definitely something I think our listeners would, would really enjoy uh, looking at, well, well, we'll try and steer clear of politics for the rest of that, uh, so that we, we don't lose the few viewers and listeners we do have. Uh, but, uh, that is an excellent point. Uh, so now Steven, uh, I think we should, uh, talk about that. Uh, uh, he, uh, in your paper, you brought up something called pop lore and that's what we really want to focus on, uh, is some pop lore. What do you think, before you, you answer pop lore, Stephen, what do you think pop lore is? I'm going to go with, is it the lore behind things like video games and um, popular culture and the lore that comes from that? Or is that completely wrong? <laughs> no, that's certainly one way you could define it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for my dissertation, one of the things I looked at is the intersection of folklore and popular culture right and folklorists as a discipline have analyzed popular culture in a few different ways um i didn't think that they really hit the nail on the head so i was going to take a stab at it and that's my dissertation and it's all about what i call pop war right now the term itself comes from um ethnomusicology which is what it sounds like you know uh basically folklore music right um and a uh, guy named Eugene Bluestein invented the term in the 80s where he's looking at the ways in which uh, folk music has become popular music, right? And I'm butchering it. I'm sorry, Mr. Bluestein. I, I apologize. But um, I didn't think that was big enough. I thought it was too good of a term. So I kind of redefined it a little bit into where if folklore is the lore of the folk, pop lore is the lore of pop culture. Right. And so one of the key aspects here is that we live in a world where pop culture is culture. Like there's no 
for all intents and purposes, there is no separation, right? The radio has been around over a hundred years, right? TV has been around and popular for coming up on what, 80 years, 75 years, whatever it is, right? We don't live in a world anymore where communities have a chance to develop kind of insular, unique cultures in the same way that now we have pop culture. Now everyone's watching the same TV show across the world at the same time, right? That's a completely different type of culture that's developing, right? And it's been like this since ostensibly the 50s, right? Um, a lot longer than that, but I'll say TV, right? Let's, let's go with the birth of TV, right? Um, so TV becomes really popular after World War II. It becomes uh, in every, almost every household by the time the 50s are, are going through, right? So we now have a situation where in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, the entire country is watching three stations. They're getting all of their information, all of their TV shows, all of their entertainment from three sources, right? So that's a completely different power dynamic than you live in a, a town and maybe the carnival will come through or the circus will come through and you'll get to experience this thing. And a couple of months later, your friend in the other state will experience it when the carnival comes through, right? Completely different dynamic. Now we're all watching Star Trek at the same time, right? And we're having the same reactions, right? We even have a kind of vernacular that comes out of it where it's, oh, the water cooler discussion, right? That phrase doesn't exist until you have a thing called a water cooler and something to talk about. Right. So it's very easy to see how culture changed around pop culture. And so now we have a situation um, where by, you know, the height of the 20th century, we're talking 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever. Pop culture has become culture and it's now driving culture. Like there are now cultural responses to pop culture. Right. I'll, I'll go with Star Trek because it's a pretty easy example, right? Um, fan convention. Plus, he loves Star Trek. I do. I, I do <laughs> love Star Trek, right? But, you know, fan conventions ostensibly didn't exist until Star Trek fans invented them, right? right? Yeah. That's a whole new form of informal community that's now developed because of this TV show that is not folklore. There's nothing folklore about Star Trek, right? It is, a, it is a formal television show produced by professional TV producers, professional actors, right? There's nothing informal about it, right? But the responses to it have become this informal uh, cultural uh, manifestation, right? That's what's interesting to me as a folklorist, right? That's the part that's interesting, right? And so I found a lot of the... Um, a lot of the ways in which folklorists have looked at these sort of things were either coming at it, um, well, they were coming at it from ways I didn't think were 100% um, uh, satisfactory for me, right? So I just did it, right? Um, so for me, pop war is the ways in which popular culture is now kind of the cultural hearth from which war uh, is invented and springs and, and manifests itself, right? Yeah. Ooh, I like that term, the cultural hearth. Yeah. 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 Well, what's the main difference between, so Star Trek has its own law. You know, people would argue, you know, the different starships, the different captains, sure. the, the history to it and all of that. But that's not an informal law. That's a formal one because it's been designed by somebody. Is that sure. the main difference between it? Whereas if it was folklore, it'd be 
it has been stories that were passed down and passed down and moulded over time. Whereas when we're talking about, again, going down the route of game law and a TV series law, we're dealing with what somebody's designed and somebody's put out there. Is that the... Yeah, I don't know where I'm quite going with yeah. that one. Is no, that got from no, I, Yeah, no, I, yeah. No, I see exactly what... You, I, see, I know exactly where you're going at. And that's the kind of grey area that... I don't think uh, has been fully explored, right? So that's part of the reason I'm doing, you know, I did this is because that is a huge gray area, right? You have, you know, uh, you know, Paramount Pictures says, here's what happened to Captain Kirk, right? CBS or Viacom or whoever says, here's what happened. Here's the official produced formal culture of this TV. And, and, and what right? is the word we use for that? Canon. Yeah, bring in the biblical term. Yeah, exactly. No, no. Canon. Canon. No, you're absolutely yes. right. And, yes, and, and there's actually a pretty good article out there um, comparing um, fandom and religious communities. But anyway, um, yeah, I'll, I think I'll find that and send it to you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> we, that's that's up our alley right there. Fandom, and but yeah. but at the same time, then you have the fans inventing their own information exactly right? yeah. you'll have uh you know i think uh, some people call it fanon right f-a-n-o-n right where it's like you know fans know quote unquote know that kirk was on the enterprise for five years right well it's not in the show like you can't point to an episode that says oh yeah he was on the episode for exactly five years or he was on the enterprise excuse me for exactly five years right Fans, you know, they know this. And sometimes competing uh, ideas will come forth and a group of fans will say, no, that's not true. Actually, this happened over here and this happened over here. And what you believe to be true is wrong, right? And then and you get to anime wife rules. Yep. Right, and that <laughs> dynamic is a huge... I mean, you see it all the time now in, in fan communities where fans are going after each other because... I know I'm right and I know you are wrong about this thing that doesn't exist, right? I mean, I'm a huge nerd, like, but at the end of the day, we're talking about things that literally don't exist except in our heads. But you, that's you all mean, that matters. You, well, I'm not going to get into whether it exists or not, but you, you mean how like Christians go to war over a particular bit of dogma yeah. or doctrine yeah. uh, like the Great Schism in 1154 where the church split across the world into East and West over adding basically one phrase to the Nicene Creed, uh, the Filioque. Right. Uh, just had to throw in some of that geeky theology. Stuff. No, and I'll, I'll go one step further for you. Right. All right. Let's uh, do it. We, we, you know, I was joking one time. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was on Twitter or something, but we can break it down. There are Orthodox Trekkies. There are Catholic Trekkies. There are Protestant <laughs> Trekkies, right? There are, uh, um, like Quaker Trekkies who just want everyone to get along, right? I mean, you know, you can break it down into different denominations if you want to do that because the way this happens, the way this works, I, I think, directly parallels the way um, kind of religious denominations manifest themselves because at the end of the day, these are very similar processes that are going on. We have a text, a cultural text, whether it's a physical book or a TV show or a movie, right? And we all have our ideas about what that text means. And we say to our friends, hey, man, this is what that text means. And they can say, I totally agree with you. We should hang out and talk about it. 
Or they'll say, I think you're wrong and I'm going to tell you you're wrong for the next hundred years. <laughs> right? So it's that same sort of process that goes along when you're talking about something like that. Now to get back to the original question, right? This is a huge gray area, right? So there, the folklore of Star Trek could be a billion different. You can interpret that uh, all these different ways, right? Can you, you know, the question, can you, can you create uh, authorized folklore, right? So if, if Star Trek.com puts out an article that says, hey, here's what happened from this year to this year, but it's not on screen, is that, is that part of canon? Or is that focal? Is that like it? That's what I'm saying. Is there's all these different gray area questions you can go through. What I'm, what I was looking at. I'm sorry. Was that? That's it. And then what happens when you have something like Star Wars, where they take the entire extended universe and just go, nope, Ben. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, what did they do? They dubbed it all legends. Hmm. Right. Right. To get back earlier, the whole point of legends is to prove to someone else that you believe this to be true. Right. So it's a very odd kind of dynamic going on there. Um, yeah. Fandom's a weird place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fandom is a very weird place. Uh, and, yeah. and I, I think that's really great. Uh, and so one of the things I want us to talk about, because we are the dungeon pastors and we, we both love dungeons and dragons here. Uh, we love board games as well, but but Dungeons and Dragons is a is a big thing for me personally. If you can't tell, wearing my D and D shirt, got the Dungeons and Dragons throw back there. Uh, so, how do you think uh, with the current resurgence? And, and now I have some old school gaming friends that have told me I cannot say the say resurgence without talking about how there's always been a core group of players for a long time. We, we acknowledge that. I'm one of those people that has been playing for a long time. But currently, we have a tremendous pop culture resurgence of Dungeons & Dragons where people are engaging in face-to-face -face play or they're engaging in online play similar to what we're doing here. They'll have a Zoom video or a Roll20 uh, game going where they're playing face-to-face -face instead of using something else and why how do you think that relates to these ideas of folklore and pop lore and why there is a resurgence of this storytelling game uh that's a great question and it's a really interesting topic um uh but i have a confession all right uh i feel like this is the right place for a confession right um <laughs> i've never played dungeons and dragons i I I can't remember the last time I played a board game. Maybe like shoots and ladders. I don't know. Um, but um, uh, so I am coming at this conversation as a complete outsider, right? Um, informed, an informed outsider, right? I, I play video games, so I'm I'm aware. I get the jokes. I get the memes, right? Um, but yeah i'm uh, i'm a bit of an outsider on this one and one well, i think that's a perfect i think to be to to be honest i think that's i'm glad you're an outsider on this because uh you know we steven and i are, we're big insiders you know what i'm saying yeah just, just so a little bit yeah <laughs> just a little bit there so i think it's great to have an outsider's take especially a folklorist take on 
what is occurring in our culture, in our community, because very often an outsider can give us a clearer view of what's happening. Yeah. So it's a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting dynamic, right? And there's a couple, I, I have a couple ideas, right? But the idea that Dungeons and Dragons, which is a role-playing game that you do physically, uh, you know, we can do it virtually, but you're, you're, you're simulating a physical act, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are all these rules. There are all these um, uh, different dynamics at play from anything else. You know, a board game, you roll dice. You know, in what other situation are you ever going to roll dice except, you know, I don't know. The crap state, I don't know. Right, crap yeah. stable in right. Vegas, yeah. So, so you have all of these kind of um, anti, anti-modern, I don't know. Uh, pre-modern, I'm not sure what to pre-modern. Call it yeah, right, call it pre-modern. but it's, it's, it's completely anti-digital either way, right? Mm-hmm. It's definitely yes. not a, a kind of, you know, um, uh, a type of game that you would imagine a, a culture that's fully immersed in digital culture to kind of engage in, right? And you company with that with the fact that high-profile people are openly advocating for this game, right? It's a very odd sort of situation. I think it's important, and I don't know because there's a there's a pretty big generational shift where I'm in my 30s and my students younger than me don't understand how being a nerd was bad. Right. And, and that's a huge, huge, I try to show them Revenge of the Nerds and be like, no, this was taken seriously. Like this was, this was a yeah. serious representation of what nerds were like, right? Um, so they can't grasp it, right? They've grown up in a world where comic book movies are coming out at least once or twice a year, right? Uh, Bill Gates is the richest you know, man in the world and he's a computer nerd, right? They've grown up on computers. They've never had dial-up internet. I played, dial, I played the dial-up internet sound for a class and they laughed. <laughs> they thought I was like, oh, that's, you know, that's kind of a stupid joke. I'm like, no, seriously, that's, <laughs> that's literally the sound that it made, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they don't, there's this massive generational shift and it's all about technology. Um, and so I wonder... And I don't have, I don't know the answer, but I wonder if this is a way for people who are in their 20s uh, or younger or what have you to kind of connect with a more idealized version of what a pre-digital world was like, right? So you don't have to, so let let me put it this way, right? And I'm trying to talk my way through this, right? I don't have to physically um, visit my friends. I don't. I can talk to them in a billion different ways that don't involve me physically seeing them face to face, right? At some point, physically seeing them face to face becomes the abnormal. It becomes the, the exceptional, mm. right? And so I wonder if D&D and playing uh, board games, if it's less about D&D itself and it's more about the physical interaction of getting together and not being in a chat room or not texting or not whatever, actually having communication with a real human being, you know, like us old people used to do in the nineties. Go ahead, Stephen. That's my main advocacy route for board games really is it's bringing people together away from their devices 
Uh, not necessarily fully away from the devices. I mean, Chronicles of Crime, that's behind me, needs a device for it to work. But it's making them present, making them be together. And it's it's the same sort of thing. Uh, BBC did a article on it sort of ages ago now, saying it's a bit like vinyl. Um, yeah, vinyl yeah. is making a comeback because it's not that... This is going to really offend any audiophiles, but it, a vinyl copy is not as clear as a digital copy by a long shot, but it's that imperfection that makes it better because it's there, it's something physical to have to hold to use. Whereas when you're playing the board games, it's something physical. You're there in person together. Yes, they can be done online. You've got things like Tabletop Simulator, you've got Tabletopia, but it's not quite the same as being there in person. And you being can't screw the rules up. You can't get a rule wrong on a video game. You know, the video game has the set yeah. rules that you have to go through. But when you're there, I mean, we were playing a game with our son just a few nights ago. We we're playing Smash City and we didn't know all the rules. So we had to stop. We had to figure out this rule. We had to, we had to talk through it. And if you can't find the rule right away and you want to keep the game flowing, you just make something up on the fly and you keep going. So, so I like that idea of the imperfection of it. I like that idea of, of warning it there with the warts and all of that. But also what John is saying, you know, we were talking about people getting together for these events and people getting together for these games. One of the things that, uh, you know, I've been on the convention scene for over a decade now and almost every convention I go to or a bid to or ministered at or led a service at or whatever, there's always someone, at least one person who says this convention is my Mecca. <laughs> and I have thought to myself, this, you mean this convention is your religious pilgrimage. And that's exactly what they're meaning because it is, but, but part of the experience is getting there, but it's not getting there by yourself. It's getting there with your tribe. It's getting there to center around this experience, which for many people is almost a religious experience. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, and I wanna I wanna just uh, real quick just point out one of the th one of the things about um, folklore that you know once you get past the uh, the kind of oh fairy tales and all that right stories and narratives will mean things to people right always have always will right so the ways in which those stories and those actions and those traditions, the ways in which they manifest themselves might be different from generation to generation, but, but, but the tradition is going to remain the same. That's kind of what I'm talking about. The, the, the tension between dynamic and conservative, right? You know, a, a person might not go to um, a Baptist church to get a spirituality uh, fix they'll go to a gaming convention. They're still getting the same process psychologically, right? But the action is going to be just a little bit different, right? Yeah. So same thing, same thing with music, same thing with sporting events, same thing with any sort of mass congregation of people where you will always have people, I mean, sports fan, I'm a huge sports fan, right? Always, always someone will be like, oh yeah, you know, uh, 
Beaver Stadium at Penn State, that's my happy place or that's my Mecca or something like that, right? You will always have the same sort of idea, right? So that idea doesn't change. The way in which we manifest it might change though. Does that right. make sense? That, that's, the, that's the fundamental driving force behind a thing in the UK called Fresh Expressions, uh, which is Fresh Expressions of Church, where you go to find where people are in their happy places and you bring God there because people probably won't come into a church. It's not their happy place. For a lot of people, it's quite the opposite. It's quite a sad place for them to go uh, for various reasons. It could be, this is the church where my grandmother was buried or this is the church where somebody was rude to me when I was a child or something like that. And they just won't step near it. But they will go to the football stadium. They will go or to the this is a church that didn't make me feel welcome because I'm a lesbian, I'm gay, I'm bisexual. Have to throw that one in there. You know that, <laughs> you know, uh, or, or in my case, in my case, we were talking about geeky when I was growing up. I mean, it, John made an excellent point about it, the younger generation does not realize how bad it was to be a geek. I mean, I, I got thrown into trash cans but I also got made fun of when, the few times I went to church, you know, because all the cool kids went to church back then in the eighties. I mean, that's what you did. If you were popular in the eighties, you went to church and you took part in it. So when a geeky kid like me shows up at church, I feel like I'm being made fun of. And so, yeah, these are reasons why you don't want to go, but that's also in fandom. And that, that's one of the things that, that I've tried to do in the fandom world is to say, hey, just because this person uh, may be a jock or they may be different than you, if they love this fandom, let them love the fandom. As long as they're not abusive or calling people out or being cruel to people, let people love their fandom. You know, uh, and of course, you know, you get in trouble when you tell people that. It's like, no, I want to argue about my fandom. And then I say, well, if you want to argue about it, let's go sit down and have a drink because I like to argue about Firefly. Uh, you know, or whatever the current fandom of the moment is, you know, I, I like to tell people that Firefly are a bunch of rebels that need to be put down just like the civil war in the United States. And that just makes people mad at me. <laughs> and and I, I do that, of course, just to start the discussion. Not that I really believe that, but I just, I, I love it having fun with people, uh, but not everybody likes those arguments. Hey, Derek, would I be able to turn on a light for some reason? Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Turn on a light. <laughs> I was wondering why you were fading out over there. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, I need to get... Hello, this is Stephen from the future. How can you tell it's the future? Well, it's daylight outside, and it's never daylight when we're recording these things because I'm always late in the evening for me. This interview with John is amazing and we ended up talking for a heck of a lot longer than we thought we would so we've decided to split it into two separate parts so i'm putting a cut at this point and next week we shall continue with the rest of our talk on folklore i hope that you're really enjoying it please do leave a comment like or subscribe to us and as you know i'm not as good at derek as giving the ending prayer but father we do ask that you help us to really think through these things that we're talking about, about the influence of pop culture upon folklore and how it influences our everyday lives. And we pray that we have your blessings as well, Lord, as, as we go forward this week. I ask that in your sons, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. See you next time, guys. <laughs>